Hello, everyone. I'm Dan Lamoth with The Washington Post. In the first two episodes of this podcast, you've heard the Ide family react to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and some of the fear that gripped the country afterward. We've heard the brothers about their experiences in training and their first deployments, and it ended with the youngest brother, John, joining his brothers in the military. You've been listening to voice actors read the letters of the Ide family, but they're not just actors. Each of them is a modern military veteran who served their country more recently. Including them in this podcast seemed appropriate, like it would help bring the experiences of this family to life more than 70 years after World War II. Here they are. Uh, my name is Michael Ball. Uh, I read the letters from Ralph. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 1989. I retired out of the Air Force in uh, 2013. I spent most of the last 10 years in the military transporting patients out of Iraq and Afghanistan. My name is Zach Burgard. I read the part of Frank. I joined the Marine Corps in 2004, and I am soon to be exiting the Marine Corps. Uh, I was with 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion for a long time, went to Iraq in 2006, 2007, bounced around a bunch of other deployments, and then back in Iraq 2014. My name is Jeff Chang. I read the part of John. I was a Navy pilot, uh, flew helicopters and planes. I was stationed in places like Japan, uh, deployed with USS Kitty Hawk, also stationed in California, uh, been at the Pentagon. And there are a couple other characters you haven't heard from yet, but who will come into the story in the second half. Here they are. Uh, my name is Brendan Wentz. I play the role of Sanford in the letters. Uh, I served in the Army for about eight and a half years, um, eventually getting out as a captain, deployed with the 82nd Airborne in Iraq in 2007 and 2008, and then later uh, back to Iraq. Uh, when we were uh, transitioning to uh, Operation New Dawn, as it was called, um, in 2010. I'm Rachel Ziegler. I read the part of Edith in the letters. I joined the Air Force in January 1990, deployed to Iraq in 2010, had two tours in Korea, an assignment in England, an assignment in Germany, Norfolk, Virginia, Omaha, Nebraska, and retired in January 2017. We included these veterans because some of the themes in here are so universal. When it comes to things like dealing with separation from loved ones, uh, the adventure that goes with military service, describing scary situations to family members, dealing with the loss of a friend, these are things that are going to be the same time in memoriam. So we really wanted people who have been there and done that to be involved. Obviously, the technology and methods by which we uh, communicate have changed a lot, but all of us who have spent time, me as a journalist, you all in the services, uh, have communicated with family and friends back home. When you were reading these letters, uh, I'd be interested to hear your experiences with this. Uh, my first time in Iraq, I guess it was more phone calls than it was letters, but on the phone calls, it wasn't what we were doing and what happened. It was how I was and... Uh, my girlfriend at the time, we had like an agreement that I wouldn't talk about anything military-wise as a reconnaissance Marine, that I was in the mail room. And so that's what she thought I did, and that's what we talked about. It's interesting to uh, the part where Ralph talks about the code words that he's going to use uh, when he writes home, because I had codes. I spent a year in Afghanistan in 06 and 07 with the provincial reconstruction team over there. 
So we were going out to these little villages in the middle of nowhere uh, all the time, and we were emailing. You know, I had access to email, so I could email on a regular basis. But the family would wonder if you're gone for a few days, what would happen? So I'd send a little, you know, if, like fixing the truck or something like that would would be going on a convoy, so they know that I'm not going to be back for a few days. You know, so it was interesting to see Ralph did the same thing. Uh, you see a lot of in these letters, uh, just little asides, you know, just the pranks, the, the, the everyday life of being in the military. Um, how much did that come up when you're, when you're talking to your friends and families while you're, while you're away? I, I think things like that come up a lot because you don't want to talk about the bad things. It's a little, it's a lot easier for the, your friends and family back home to hear, to talk about the jokes that you play on each other and, and I, I think you, f- you feel like it's going to take your, your family's mind off of where you are and make them worry a little less. I, I think also it's much easier to talk about the everyday thing versus the, the war that you're in. Um, working in Iraq, I, I, uh, I had an office job, so we worked in an old building. Um, and it was, it was old, it was smelly, there were animals running through the building. And, and one day I'm sitting at my desk and I just happen to open the bottom drawer and a mouse jumps out of the drawer across my keyboard and then across the little, the little tier on the wall that held all the cables. Um, everybody in the building could hear me scream. <laughs> it was, and those are the kind of funny things that you want to write home about because it really kind of relieves the tension of just the day to day. I've had somebody even ask me recently, uh, within the last year or two, I was somebody had asked about, you know, experiences in Iraq or Afghanistan and I was telling stories and they're like, all your stories are funny. Like it was, like it was a bad thing. Like somehow that she she saw that negatively. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I mean, I I can't explain why that is. I don't want to talk about all them. So that's a pretty messed up stuff over there. I mean, I moved wounded for almost 10 years, so I don't I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the, you know, the things that were humorous and, and, and the stories that were funny. So it's interesting though, when you come home and, and, uh, people are still like, <laughs> all you, the only stories you tell are funny stories. You don't tell any of the messed up stories. I got to drink more to do that. Um, I think, uh, some of the experiences that veterans have, whether it be overseas or even in training, um, can be really funny amongst when they're when they're discussing them with each other because they know that there's just nobody else they can explain certain things to that's going to understand how something like that happened so i remember a training exercise we were doing um at fort bragg you know as one does jumping out of planes in the middle of the night uh for fun this was a big one though so we had vehicles with us that we were airdropping and things like that so they dropped a humvee and we ended up uh, driving around um, all night in the middle of the woods looking for it. It turns out it had blown up, but we couldn't find a, a multi-million dollar vehicle that we just threw out of a plane. So <laughs> just there's only certain people that are going to really get how that happens. Um, so. so we were doing free fall operations in North Carolina in preparation for one of our deployments. And um, we had the new Yankee... Uh, helicopters, which is the new version of the 60s, uh, slightly bigger cabin, but it also has an aux input cable. And so pilots aren't supposed to, but a lot of times it happens. They put a, an iPhone or something in, they listen to music because when, when, when the radio keys, 
the music cuts out and they can just talk over it. So I'm the jump master and I'm doing, we're doing the free fall operations out the side and I'm walking around the cabin and I tap the two guys on starboard, tap the two guys on port. I give a little peace sign to the crew chief and I jump out and I had a GoPro mounted on the inside to watch our exits. And if you pause the video, you can see the pilot's phone wrapped around my leg <laughs> as I'm like five feet outside the aircraft. <laughs> and uh, when we landed, they came down. They're like, hey, uh, do you guys think you can look for that phone? I was like, no. We exited the aircraft at 13,000 feet, two miles away from the drop zone. That thing is gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing that struck me uh, reading these letters is the the way that the brothers write back home versus the way they write to each other. Um, they're describing some some pretty tough situations, uh, but but when they're writing back home, the mom, it's often you know I'm feeling fine and dandy. Um, how do you balance that? You mentioned the funny stuff, but how how does the tougher stuff come out? It doesn't. Um, really, it's it's easier to talk about the hard things with people who understand. So the people that you're deployed with, the people that you work with on a daily basis, they get it. They understand. It's easy to talk about that with them. Um, civilians um, who've not been in the military before really don't always understand. So it's easier just to tell them the easy things. So for us, we had um, like a battlefield ritual where we were in flight suits at the time. Um, and we carried a pack of cigarettes in your shoulder pocket. And then when you got hit and you got extracted, the people would take your weapons and optics and serialized gear. And then I'll take that pack of cigarettes and we'd go back after we extracted you or whatever the case was. And we'd sit and smoke your cigarettes and tell stories about you. And then it was like done and we didn't talk about it anymore. And so for me, um, I have PTSD and it didn't really pop up until like 10 years after that deployment when my team leader from that deployment killed himself over the summer in 2016. And he was the third death since we had been done with combat operations, you know? Um, and then it was kind of like time to take a step back and, you know, without trying to looked at all these demons that were fighting and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I mean, like for me, I didn't talk about it. We didn't write home about it. We just kind of discussed it quickly there. And then in the, in the years since getting out, uh, it's just kind of crept up on guys. I also think, you know, as, as children, we don't want to worry our parents. And we always want to reassure our parents that, okay, we're fine, we're safe, everything's okay. Um, when, when sometimes they're really not. Yeah. I think a lot of families, that's what they want to hear and that's what they want to believe too. So I know my family was always they always love to say how they're they're so proud that you're you know you served and uh they love to talk about you know the fact that it it's been done um but they don't want to hear the cold hard truth of things and you know when you're telling your story of things creeping up on people um you don't you don't always know how you're going to process certain experiences until it just happens and I've had similar issues where things come up years later, you know, just out of nowhere. So there can be a difficulty, I think, in just being brutally honest with family members about not only what you did in certain areas or, or while you were deployed, but how it's still impacting you. They kind of would rather hear, good job, um, just get back to normal, you know. 
uh, censorship comes up a lot in the letters, both in terms of the brothers saying, hey, you know, I can't talk about X because they're just going to cut it out anyway. Uh, but also um, them kind of acknowledging they can speak about it now that they are in a new location. Those sorts of things are still universal. Um, but the way we deliver information has changed a lot. How did you all work through that when you were emailing, calling, whatever? Um, I did a lot of email correspondence. Um, but, yeah, generally avoiding the mentioning of spe specific locations um, or even regions sometimes. Um, but I think, uh, and it would actually infuriate me sometimes because I, I was always being an intel person, uh, had an operational security mindset, but I would see people go online and this is when Facebook was becoming super popular um, and we were in Iraq and just literally posting exactly where they were. Um, certain people uh, are a little more savvy about it and other people are not. On, on a U.S. Navy ship, they have an easy way of preventing any kind of um, leakage, if you will, of information about where they are. They would just turn off the Internet. That's, I, I think it was pretty much as simple as flicking a switch. We would type up emails. It would probably just get saved in some sort of sent out, outbox waiting to be you know, connected. And then you know, maybe days later, our families would, would receive it. You, know, they would, you, you could tell that it's like, yeah, it's days later. But yeah, even still, uh, as, as a precaution, you know, most people would be pretty, pretty aware of the fact that, yeah, don't, don't, tell where, don't, don't mention where we're going or don't mention where we are now or something like that. Um, Zach, um, when you were uh, looking at some of the letters together with, with us before, you mentioned uh, that you could very obviously see the difference between Frank and Ralph and the fact that one was a Marine and one was a soldier. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on that? Um, just like the military terms, liberty and furlough, post. Uh, so the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy, and we take over a lot of naval turns, uh, bulkhead, head, things like that. And, um, and so you could see it in the writing. But you, it's, it's interesting that you can, when you talk to other veterans, you can sometimes tell what service they're from by the language they use because each, each branch has its own terminology that they use and own, you know, own terms for things like bulkhead and, and, and deck and all that, you know. Army would call it floor. Marines and Navy call it the deck. You know, some people say base, some people say post, some people say garrison. So, and it's very interesting to me in reading these letters too that 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 hasn't changed, and we we're we still talk the same way, and the experiences that they have are are much the same as as any one of us having gone through training. Um, we hear the brothers in the letters often sort of dehumanizing the enemy. You know, the, the yellow rats, the things along those lines. Uh, you know, they call the Germans Huns. I mean, there's a variety of it that comes up throughout. Uh, and it can be pretty jarring, uh, I think, walking in it initially. But for me reading it, it kind of, that too almost seemed universal in a way. Uh, I don't know, what, what would your, any of your experiences be with that sort of thing? I think uh, every generation sort of goes through that process of giving some sort of term to an enemy to either dehumanize them or just put them in a category um it it makes it sort of easier for them to to talk about them less you know less as human beings and more as just a target maybe but there's a lot of uh 
a lot of initiatives that go towards ensuring that soldiers, Marines, whatever they, whatever it is, um, steer clear of, you know, becoming in the habit of using that kind of language. I think that only comes out though, when the point of the war is to start to win the populace and it's not to kill the enemy. So in the beginning, you know, like you have famous speeches online from generals from every generation talking and, you know, they'll refer to as, I'm not sure if Haji was ever used, but absolutely ma'am. And a man was a military age male, and that was anybody who looked to be they could hold a rifle, you know? Uh, Jeff, you're you're Asian, but not Japanese. Um, did any of this jar you or seem difficult or frustrating to read now? It didn't. This was a different time. I mean, this was what America was all about in the 40s. Um, here now, at 2017, it's definitely different. Even in the military, um, I joined in 1996, um, and when I think back to my years of service, I really don't have any examples. I don't have any examples of uh, of me personally really, you know, like experiencing um, any kind of racial prejudice or anything like that. I don't know if I'm, if if my story is unique, um, but this is not who we are today uh, as a country. Um, it might have been back then in the 40s, but I'm not offended um, I, because I know that today we're different. Well, I, I guess probably more a broad question. Um, as you guys have been kind of pulled into this this experience, these letters, um, and probably thought more about World War II than most of us do on a day-to-day basis, what's gone through your minds? Just like I said, it's remarkable to me how much things are the same the way that people talk to each other about their training and about their experience what they're going through uh getting ready to deploy waiting for your orders to come down the 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 experiences that they're going through uh, is is very relatable uh to anyone even now who's gone through that yeah for me you know feeling very similar to frank Um, It's very interesting to read his letters and see that Marine Corps training and indoctrination is so similar to the way it is now. You know, like leave it to the Marines or, you know, I think this war will be over in two months time and, you know, send in the Marines and that kind of mindset. And it's very interesting to know that that mindset is still, you know, pumped into Marines this many years later. What makes the grass grow? Yeah. I kind of had a different perspective, not really World War II related, but it was more about the letters um, and just the art of letter writing. We don't really write letters anymore, not in this, this way. So 50 years from now, no one's going to find a box of letters from 2017 in a storage unit anywhere. It's all going to be in the cloud somewhere it's just it's different it's just not the same and to have somebody 50 years in the future interpret our tweets and our chats and our instagrams it's just the stories that we're telling now we're not going to get the same stories 50 years from now about things that are happening today We'll be back with more from these veterans in another episode for another discussion. But first, stay tuned for the second part of this podcast, where we will rejoin the Eid family as World War II ramps up and the brothers face the prospect of fighting. 
They don't know it yet, but they'll take part in some of the war's most pivotal battles in the Pacific and have their lives changed forever. If you're interested in reading more about the Ides, we have tons of pictures of the family and all of these letters. You can see them at WashingtonPost.com slash Letters from War. I'm Dan Lamoth. Thanks for listening.